So here on Sunday mornings, we're studying John, and we're using this theme, life in his name. It's kind of this way to frame the different sections of John. And we didn't make this up. This actually comes from John the Apostle who penned this gospel. In chapter 20 of this very gospel, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I say this probably every time I get up to teach out of the Gospel of John. It's kind of like a little intro liturgy for me, but it's also for you. John makes it very clear. This is not an exhaustive biography of the life and works of Jesus, but he has handpicked and curated these things with a purpose. He wants us to believe certain things about Jesus. What what are those things? That he is the son of God, that he is Messiah, and that by believing these things, we might have life in the name of Jesus. So there's an offer on hand every Sunday we gather around this gospel to ask ourselves, do we have life in the name of Jesus? when we read scripture, when we hear the words of Jesus, to ask ourselves this deep heart-searching question, is that true of me? Am I experiencing this? Am I experiencing what I could call deep life in the name of Jesus? And maybe even asking, or a good way to find out if I am is, can I commend the life that I have to others? Can I say, I wanna share with you this life that I have, it's that good. It's that amazing that I want you to experience it as well. So each week that we gather, we have this opportunity to recalibrate around this question. Do I have life in the name of Jesus? And then we get this opportunity if we don't, or if we aren't experiencing that life, to receive Jesus' offer, to take it by the hand and to begin to live it out or begin to apply it to the places of our life where it is not present. Last week, we looked at this incredible story of the Samaritan woman who meets and talks with Jesus at this well, and as she does, her deep heart desire is revealed, and as we saw, her soul's thirst, her inner longings of her very being are satisfied. We talked about how God is a God who is seeking people who are thirsty. Not only that, but the Father is seeking. We're told the Spirit is compelling Jesus And Jesus is pursuing this woman. I think all of this is just showing us how God is relentlessly pursuing humans who are far from him in order to bring them back to them that they might experience life in his name. Now, the story continues, and we see how the woman immediately becomes a witness of the things that she has just experienced. She has experienced this living water that Jesus talked about, and immediately it is like a well springing up within her, and she goes and tells others about what she has just experienced, inviting them to come and see. Now, what transpires as she leaves the scene we find the disciples are kind of entering in. They're kind of like these ships passing the night. Disciples are entering. She's finishing up with Jesus. And this interesting conversation happens with the disciples. They offer some food to Jesus because they've been busy in town trying to find this food. And Jesus tells them he's already eaten. So the disciples are already confused constantly with Jesus, but this one just really throws them for a loop, right? They show up, Jesus is talking with a woman, you know, according to the kind of the customs of that time, he shouldn't be talking to a woman, especially not a woman who wasn't his wife or something like that, and especially not a seemingly immoral woman. So they've kind of got all these issues going on. They're like, oh, and nobody wants to ask him, it's this real awkward situation. And they're like, well, you know, just eat some food. And he's like, I already ate. Who gave him food? What is happening right now, right? A lot of confusion going on with the disciples. And I don't know if you feel this way, but when I read the Gospels, I think Jesus does this kind of stuff on purpose. Like, he just messes with them constantly. 
And he does this in order that he might reveal deeper spiritual realities to them. Remember, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. And so he's taking stuff like along the way, along life's journey, and he's just pulling these pieces and these things in in order to instruct his disciples and us in his ways. Now, it's interesting because the major concern of the disciples in this story is their search and concern for food, for bread in particular. Even the pressure and concern for Jesus to eat is a reflection of their focus on bread. But in contrast to them, Jesus' primary focus is not on seeking food, but on seeking people. And so since they're so gung-ho about this bread and concerned about this, Jesus, as I said, uses this moment to teach them to give them a new understanding. And simultaneously, he's wanting to open our eyes. You know, whenever we read the word disciple or disciples in the gospel, if you're a Jesus follower, I think that that's the gospel writer's way of inviting us into the story. Now remember, the gospel writers were not, or even the New Testament writers for that matter, they're not just telling us what the Bible says or what happened, they're telling us what it means. I want us to think about that for a second. What is written down isn't just, oh, this is what happened. That's there as well. But they're telling us what it means. What it means when Jesus has this conversation. What it means for us. What it means for the world. And so these moments where the disciples kind of come in on the scene and they're being taught, this is a moment for us to receive deep, meaning and understanding for Jesus and to be redirected in his way. So Jesus says this, look, pay attention. Open your eyes, disciples. The fields are white for harvest. It's ripe, it's ready. What he's saying is there are opportunities all around you to plant seed and to harvest for eternal life. Now, Jesus, I think, is giving them kind of the cliff notes or commentary on what just happened between him and this woman. He says, in this context, both the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. Like, sowing and reaping is happening in concert at the same time. That doesn't normally happen, right? Normally, you plant something, you wait a heck of a long time, and then finally, like one little sprig, beep, you know? You're like, yes, right? There's a long process between that. Jesus is saying this is happening simultaneously. He has planted this seed in this woman, and already life is springing into being. Not only that, but the woman now is taking this message to the people of her village, of her city, and she's sharing it with them, and there's more life springing into being. There is a harvest happening right in front of them. Now, I believe that John recorded this story in order to invite disciples into the continuing work God is engaged in in the world. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a disciple, wherever you might be in your station of life, your career, or the location, the neighborhood, the locale that God has placed you in, he is calling you into the harvest there. So what do I, what do I mean by harvest, or what does the scripture mean by harvest? Well, it's fascinating to note, I think, the way that Jesus sees the world. There are all sorts of ways of seeing the world. There's even, I would say, biblical ways of seeing the world that can often be unhelpful for witness. See, if we see the world as a dangerous place that we fear, uh, John Newton put it this way, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. If you think of the world in the context of danger, toil, and snare, guess what? You're probably not gonna be real stoked to be sent out into the world, are you? If you think about, hey, Church, be warned, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's this triple threat that wants to consume your life and lead you away from God's flourishing. It's out there, beware. 
Are you apt to jump right into witness, to go into the world? Probably not. So there are actually biblical ways of seeing the world that can elicit fear and give us suspicion. But I want to actually challenge that a bit and show that Jesus has a way of seeing the world. And we're called to follow Jesus first and foremost. I'm not pitting Jesus against scripture, but I'm saying we have to remember context. And here in this context, as Jesus is looking out at the world, he is telling us the world is a ripe crop of souls to be harvested into the kingdom of God. That's the way Jesus sees the world. There is opportunity. That's how Jesus sees the world. And we need to be brought into Jesus' way of perceiving. We need to see the people around us that are seeking thirsting and hungering after God. We talked pretty extensively about this last week. That sometimes we can get frustrated at people seeking, whether it's you know, after uh, you know, Baha'i or New Age, or it might be this, or it might be that, or it might be this new relationship, or it's this new career, and they're on this high. I remember years ago talking to a guy, and he was so depressed, and then I just asked him a little bit about what he did. And guys, this is like five years ago. And he started telling me about Bitcoin. And I seriously, it was like talking to somebody who had just been born again. The way, like, Bitcoin was the answer to every problem in his life. He was going to buy an island. I'm not even joking. Going to buy an island. When everything went down, you know, when the end came, his, his, him and his family were going to be safe because of Bitcoin. So everybody's got this narrative, right, that they live by. And yet... When they reach it, when they achieve it, when they lay hold of it, guess what happens? It's disillusionment. Because every human being has been created by God and been created for God. And when we don't live according to that, there's breakdown. And what happens with disillusionment and breakdown is it creates really, really thirsty people. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because thirsty people will not be satisfied until they find water. And God says he's the fountain of living waters. This is the way we need to see the world. This is the way Jesus sees the world. And if we're his people, if we want to follow him wherever he goes, this is the way we need to see things. We need to remember that we have a message of life, peace, and hope found only in Jesus. That through his life, death, and resurrection, through his victory over sin and death, we can experience life in his name as we follow him in the path he laid out for us. And we can invite others to do so. Now, I know many people reject our message at face value. And for me, it, this is just my perspective in the world, with all the Christian cliches and bumper stickers and you know, Christian culture that's kind of out there, I'm not surprised. Because it just feels like you're being sold something. Feels like you're being sold some you know, happy, clappy, trite, you know, always keep you up, never let you down type of product. I'm not surprised that people reject our message at face value, but I believe when they experience the kindness, goodness, and love of God through us, it deeply resonates with their souls. I've experienced this time and time again. You know, I lived the last 16 years in Northern California, and, you know, Northern California, when you think about, like, hey, what happened to all the, you know, wild hippie people you know, back in the day, where'd they all go? They're hiding in the trees in Northern California, where I lived, in the forests. And God sent me and my family to go find them and hang out with them. And so it was just interesting. You know, we would go, and um, I love playing music, I love listening to music, and so we would go to this local pub, and I would, you know, do the open mic, and we'd just be there and just hang out with people and get to know people. And I can't tell you how many times we had this experience where we were just operating as our family or maybe with our community from the church. We would have people come up to us and say, you know, who are you people? 
Like, I've just been watching, like, you and your wife, I'm assuming it's your wife, or, like, just your, your, your unit's dynamic and just the way that you guys treat one another. There's just so much joy here. I remember this one time in particular, this woman just went off just on how radiant my wife was. And she's like, I just feel drawn to her. I know nothing about her, but just watching her interact with your children is just incredibly attractive to me. It's beautiful. And so I got the opportunity just to share with her like who we are and what we're about. It's interesting to me because when we live out the life of the gospel, the goodness and kindness and generosity of God, it resonates with people in a way that sometimes doctrine can miss people. You know, Rodney Stark, in his book, I think it's in The Triumph of Christianity, he wrote two books, similar title, um, The Rise of Christianity, The Triumph of Christianity. You're like, I don't care. Okay, so in his book, he talks about how in the early church, much um, to our surprise, people did not convert because of doctrine. Like, okay, hmm, let me see, you believe it, a human being, or you know, God became a human, and then that human died and then came back to life. All right, sounds good, I'm in. What happened was they experienced the Christian community. This is the testimony of Tertullian. Say it with me. <laughs> I can't even say it. Tertullian, he says, see how they love one another. They had never seen people treat people this way. It was shocking to them. And they wanted to be part of a community of kindness. They wanted to experience this themselves, and so they joined the church. And yes, of course, eventually they adopted these doctrines and beliefs about Jesus because, of course, they, we believe that the core of the meaning of the world is self-sacrificial love. This comes from God. This gives meaning and purpose to all of the things that we are called to do as Christians. That comes out of who God is and how he made the world to operate. But that's not where it started for people. It was through the attractional lives of God's people that people were brought into the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes we call this harvesting work that Jesus is talking about here evangelism. Sometimes we refer to it as witnessing or mission. But I think those words come with all sorts of connotation. Like, we just immediately go to the box, right? Like, for some of you, you're Calvary people, I get it. Greg Laurie, like, that's the evangelist, Billy Graham. Or you think of Huntington Pier, tracks. Maybe. I don't know. That's really limited when you think about the God who created all things, right? There's probably more to it than that. Leslie Newbegin describes beautifully what I believe Scripture is telling us. Listen to this. He says, the logic of mission is this. The true meaning of the human story has been disclosed or revealed in Jesus because it is the truth, it has to be shared universally. It can't be private opinion. And when we share it with all people, whether in word or deed, we give them the opportunity to know the truth about themselves, to know who they are because they can know the true story of which their lives are a part. Man, it's so true like the, the missing piece that just brings clarity to everything else. Remember C.S. Lewis, he had that line. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not because I look at the sun, but because by the sun, I can see everything else. The story of Scripture, the story, God's story in Scripture, brings radical clarity to the story of the world but even to the sordid stories that we have present even here today. It gives clarity to us. And the world around us is longing for that same kind of clarity. We need to be reminded of the harvest that is right in front of us. We need to be reminded, as these first disciples were, that there is more to life than the next meal. 
There's more to just getting more than just getting by, more than just living and existing on a physical plane or, you know, like getting into the kingdom of God and just being like, cool, I guess in heaven I'll have some stuff to do. But until then, just cruising, right? Now, we're told that the Samaritans, upon hearing the testimony of the woman, left the town and were coming to Jesus. Can you picture it? That Jesus is there with his disciples and they're talking to him about, you know, like, what's going on? You, eat, you ate, you didn't eat, what, you're, you're full, you're, uh, we don't get it. And he's explaining this whole thing to him. And all of a sudden he says this, open your eyes. There is a harvest waiting to be gleaned. And as they look in the distance, here are coming a multitude of Samaritans toward Jesus. Like you could just picture this scene. What a powerful moment as Jesus is saying to his disciples, do you not realize it yet? We're not in Samaria for a meal. We didn't come here because we were hungry. We're not just here to get bread. We're in Samaria for a spiritual harvest. And I feel like if Truly, if Jesus were here today, he would want to say to the churches of Orange County, church, you are not in Orange County because it's a nice place to live. You're not in California because of the cost of living or trying to figure out how you can keep up with the cost of living in California and live comfortably. You're not here because you agree with the politics or don't agree with the politics. None of that. We are here for the harvest. That's why God has called us to be here. We are here to be light, to be salt. We're here to be the colony of heaven in the country of death. Now, I am not slamming anybody that moved to Meridian, and gosh, who could lift up their hand and tell us how many friends moved to Meridian from California maybe in the last three years? Some of you are like, Meridian, where is that? It's in Idaho, just so you know. Right? So people, it's like, uh, California is hemorrhaging, you know, the Texas and Idaho and all these places. Well, yeah, you got to live in those places. Just remember that, right? Anyway, uh, this is my little soapbox. But I often think about this. If all the Christians move where, you know, they feel like the politics align with, you know, their convictions, guess what? What about the salt? What about the light? What about the call of the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death? Last time I checked, the New Testament doesn't talk about the comfort of our politics. We're about a kingdom politic. And we're called to represent that anywhere and everywhere we go. Be it conservative or liberal politics, we have a different way of seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. We have a different way of relating with the world through the posture of Jesus. Jesus wants us to see the world differently than the way we ordinarily see it. It's a world in which Father, Son, and Spirit are relentlessly pursuing those who are hungry and thirsty and lost. I mean, guys, just think about the Gospel of John. Jesus is the living water, He's the light. He's the shepherd. He's the way. I mean, all of this is like, it all has this, you know, metaphor for people that are lost or searching. God is relentlessly at work seeking. Therefore, the world around us is an opportunity now at this very moment to live in deep fellowship and communion with, in cooperation with God in his work of salvation and redemption, there's a world waiting to be redeemed. That's how Jesus sees the world. And he is inviting disciples, anyone who will hear, into that work. Let me just say this. If you don't get this, you'll never have a true heart for evangelism or missions. And honestly, if you don't get this, you'll never experience true fellowship with God. Because God is working. 
And you know, Jesus is constantly using this language. My father's working, I'm working. I'm only doing what I see the father do. I'm only doing what I've heard the father tell me. I'm only doing what pleases the father. Jesus has this life of being in concert with the father. And guys, that's what eternal life is. It's fellowship with God. We said this last week. If you're in fellowship with God, guess what? You're gonna go places with him. Places maybe you don't want to go. But God is at work in the world and he wants you to join him in that work. And as you do, you realize, man, there is deep satisfaction. This is where I mature and grow as I am in concert, cooperation, and partnership with God and his work. The last thing I'll say on this point is I feel sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, so it's not just, you know, it's not you people, it's church culture. Sometimes it seems to me that we are almost waiting for God to do just one more thing. Even in our prayers, even in our songs, our focus is on God rain down. God, send your spirit. Lord, come. Which, all of those are biblical prayers, but guess what? Most of those kind of prayers happened in the Old Testament, and they were fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. I feel sometimes we're waiting for a second Pentecost. It already happened. It's not happening again. See, the New Testament authors in the early church saw what God did in and through Jesus as the climax of the story of God. The defeat of sin, evil, and death at the cross. The resurrection from the dead. The ascension of the Son of Man, a human being to the right hand of God. Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, God's presence to live amongst People, his church, we see the gathering of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people in one family. We see a colony of heaven here on earth. The question I want to ask many times is, what are we waiting for? Because the story is almost over. Go tell everyone Live out this life of the kingdom of heavens into every nook and cranny of the world today. Take it everywhere. You know, it's really interesting, and I know this is a side note, and I promise I wouldn't go long, but I might. Um, It's really interesting. Paul the Apostle, you guys remember that part where he's talking about, like, I've got to go to Spain. You ever like, why Spain? Anybody? Come on, there's got to be somebody. Somebody else. Josh Sorensen has asked this question. Thanks, Josh. Why does he want to go to Spain? Because they believed, the New Testament writers, the disciples, the apostles, the early church believed, we get this message out to the ends of the earth, and guess what? The king returns. They had a mission and a scope. They had a plan and a strategy. Their role was to get this message to anyone and everyone in their generation. Of course, they didn't know at the time that we would be here 2,000 years later saying the same thing, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there isn't more to come when God returns and judges the living and the dead, when God makes all things new, new heaven, new earth, more to enjoy, more to discover in God. I'm not even saying that we aren't, or there aren't moments when the Spirit of God breaks in to revive his people and to draw those who are outside in to rescue people in powerful, potent ways. But I am saying I think we have come to minimize what God has already done. The story is almost over. And C.S. Lewis, he's got this incredible quote from Mere Christianity. I won't read it to you today because I'm going to get through this. But basically, he says in essence, God will invade. He will come. But listen, when he does, it's the end. When the director walks out on the stage, guess what? The play is over. 
So in our prayers of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, are we also considering that when he comes, you guys, it's the end. That's it. And man, there are so many in our world who are hungering and thirsting for God. Jesus says to us, to anyone who will listen, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, another thing I want to point out in this text that I think is powerful and just this incredible invitation waiting for us is that this work that we are invited into is deeply satisfying work. Jesus tells them he's not hungry, right? He's eaten. He's physically and spiritually sustained by the work the Father sent him to do. Now, I don't believe that somehow, like, you know, it happened that the spiritual work turns into physical bread and Jesus is actually full. I believe what Jesus is describing here is that he is so overjoyed at this moment that all other filling pales in comparison to rescue one of his creation that he dearly loves has just brought so much thrill and joy to his heart. He is full. So what does Jesus mean by food or nourishment from doing the Father's work? Well, this is the way I see it. It's that when I truly live my life in concert with God, with his ways, with his truth, his values, his mission in the world, that it resonates so deeply with me because this is what I was created for. I was created for fellowship with God. You and I are created to partner with God in making the world into a place that reflects his goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Remember, the first humans who were created by God in his image, male and female, he created them. And he sets them over all of creation, makes them king and queen. He says, make other image bearers and then spread out my kingdom this national park of the Garden of Eden, spread it to the ends of the earth. See, God was inviting Adam and Eve to partner with him, to join with him in the work that he had done, the work that he was doing. This is what it means to be human, to live in fellowship and partnership with God. We're created to build something. We're created to build God's world with him. And when we do God's work with God, when we live out that reality, it deeply satisfies our soul in a way that no meal, in a way that no relationship, that no dopamine hit or experience on earth can. In this identity and work, we find our true selves, who God created us to be, and it is deeply nourishing. It's deeply filling. I really believe that the church is in need of recapturing this idea of vocation. That God is at work in the world. That God is at work in each of us. That God is at work in our work. And these are ways, the things that we build, the products that we make, the way that we run our companies or contribute to the businesses that we are part of, is a way of doing God's work when we do it with his posture, with his truth, with his kindness, with his hospitality. I believe that there is actually a deep nourishment to our souls if we were to invite God into the work that we are doing, and we would see that God has actually placed us in the places that we are because of the work that he is doing and the work that he is desiring to do. Do you guys hear that? Does that, does that resonate with some of you? It's not, the idea isn't that all, everybody should work at a church. The idea isn't that everybody should serve on some team or committee at the church, no. 
The idea is that we gather, and there's some people that are called to do what I'm doing this morning, and other people that are called to do what Hannah's doing, connecting people and serving in these different ways. And yes, we want to take care of needs and make sure that people are built up in Christ, make sure that people are connected. But for the most part, God has called us out there to serve the people around us with the goodness and kindness of God, to do God's work in God's world. Now, lastly, how do we engage then in this harvesting work? What does it look like to witness? Again, from Leslie Newbegin, he says this, not every word needs a deed attached to it. And not every deed needs a word. It is the combination of the two that arises out of the total witnessing life of the church in the midst of the world. And further, there are different gifts, some in evangelism, others in showing mercy, and still others in pursuing justice. All the gifts are needed. But the spirit, who is the primary witness, uses both word and deeds to witness to Jesus and the coming kingdom. Therefore, the church may not be silent nor absolve itself from deeds of mercy and justice. It's both. Sometimes it's words. Other times it's deeds. Now, it's interesting We kind of have that combination, I think, even in the story. You see, with the woman, her kind of witness posture is one of invitation. Come and see. You know, sometimes our witness or evangelism is intimate, deep, and personal, like the conversation Jesus has with her. And other times, it's as simple as the woman's testimony to those in her city. Come. Come and see. There's a man who told me everything I ever did. Knew me completely, warts and all, and yet showed me love and kindness. Touched a deep, deep need within me and satisfied this. Could that be Messiah? Sometimes it's just your own story. Later in the Gospel of John, we'll hear another testimony of somebody who's touched by Jesus. And everybody's got a problem with it. And he's like, look, I don't know. I was once blind and now I see. That's all I can tell you. It's such a simple story. But it's his story. For some of us, that's all God's calling us to do in certain situations. We're just saying, like, look, I don't know. This is what happened to me. I've been changed. I've been filled. I've been satiated. I don't know. Come and see. See for yourself. I want to say this, though, in the middle of these two points. I just talked about the harvest and, you know, this need for us to engage in God's work. But let me add this to it. I don't believe for a second we are under pressure to get anything done or to make anything happen. I believe that every single one of us who belong to Jesus are called to cultivate that identity as a dearly loved son or loved daughter of God. I believe God calls us to cultivate that identity in mission and serving and witness and good works and kindness. All of that simply flows from being. You can find this again and again in the teaching of Scripture. God is not concerned about what we build for him, but that we build with him. He's concerned about fellowship. He wants us close to him. God just wants us to live out our identity and life in Jesus where we are currently to the people God has put right in front of us. Listen to this. Jesus tells his disciples, talk about no pressure. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. There it is. Pressure's off. I don't think he's talking about other people in this verse. Who, who, who did the work? He's talking about God working and going before us in all of our work. See, God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit are the great witness in the world, drawing people to deep satisfaction, to life and love in God. 
the work and witness of the triune God of seeking, compelling, and pursuing, listen, it precedes all our work and witness. All of it. We simply get to partner in the work God is already engaged in. So for some of us, it's that, it's that simple, come and see. For others, and I actually think this is probably what God is calling most of us into, if I could just say, with the way culture is, with the state of the church at this moment, I think we're called to be hospitable like Jesus in this story that we just read. What do I mean by that? Well, the definition of hospitality is this, friendly or welcoming to strangers or guests. So what would that look like then? Well, think about Jesus' conversation with this woman. It's unhurried. I think we have created a Christian culture that wants to seal the deal as quickly as we can, want to get people in. We would see a conversation just getting to know someone, unfortunately, as a missed opportunity if we didn't get to mention the name of Jesus or lead someone in a you know, gospel presentation or a sinner's prayer. But Jesus' conversation is unhurried. God's work precedes all our work. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Do I believe that God is drawing people to himself? Then I don't need to hurry. I don't need to rush the process. See, we are calling people to a radical reorientation around the person and life of Jesus. That takes time for people to think through their lives at a deep level. It takes lots of grace, and yes, it takes the presentation of the gospel. But I think, church, we need to pump the brakes a little bit. We just need to get to know people. Remember, there's a couple of stories in the Bible where it just talks about the character of God. I'm thinking of one right now about Hagar. Hagar was the slave of Abraham and his wife, Sarai. And there's this one story where Hagar flees because she's been treated wrongfully by Sarai. But in the process of things, God comes and finds her. And you know what she says about God? You are the God who sees me. Church, let's cultivate that kind of character. We are people that see other people in their plight, in their pain, in their lack of meaning and direction for life. We see them. We just see you. You're on our radar. Not only that, but listen, there's other stories in Scripture that tell us that God is the great listener that he hears people's cries. He hears their stories. Think about Psalm 107, how we're told about all these different people, how God meets them in their story and directs them to himself. God is the great listener, listening to our cries, listening to our heart desires. Let's be those kind of people, Jesus people, who would be unhurried in our seeing unhurried in our listening. But not only that, Jesus is also conversational with this woman. He's drawing out her story. He's asking her about it. He's sharing with her. It's back and forth. It's not a monologue. And I know I'm doing a monologue right now, but don't pay attention to that. He's in dialogue with her. He's pulling things out. It's conversational and ongoing. I wonder how many conversations the Lord's just calling us to get into. Where we're not trying to seal the deal again. We're just keeping the conversation going. Letting people know that Jesus cares, and we do too because we're his people. Letting people know that Jesus sees them, and we do too because we're his people. A couple more. It's deep and it's personable. I went off on this first gathering, but I'll make this shorter because my time is up. <laughs> um, in this story, guys, Jesus never brings up sin with the woman at the well. Question for you Bible people, is the woman in sin according to the Mosaic law? Yes, she is, yeah. 
This is not God's ideal for humanity to live this way. She's in sin, but Jesus does not bring up her sin in a direct way. He doesn't tell her, listen, repent, confess, you know, and then do these things. But he speaks very personally to her thirst, her longing. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. And I've noticed that in much of our Christian witness, our message to the world is repent. You're a sinner. God is righteous. You're headed for hell. You can go to heaven. But let me just say this. The gospel is not less than that. It is more. That is the teaching called penal substitutionary atonement. We believe that Jesus has died, suffered, crucified, buried, and was risen again for our justification, to cleanse us from sin, to purify us before God. We do believe that. But the gospel is more than that. You know, the gospel also applies to those who live in fear. Paul tells us in Colossians that we have been transferred from the powers and kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. We've been taken from this fear of the powers that be, the work at work in the world, and we've been brought into God's kingdom. Not only that, but Paul also talks about that some of us were shameful, dishonored, cast out outsiders, separate from the promises of God. And guess what? God removed our shame and he brought us into his family and gave us honor. See, the gospel is about power and fear, shame and honor, guilt and innocence. Can you imagine telling somebody that's experienced rape and abuse and just a horrific lifestyle? Yeah, you're a sinner you need to repent and God will forgive you. For what? Please, enlighten me. For what? No, the message to this individual is God is the great rescuer and he has been pained in your pain. He is the one who suffers with you and has suffered for you in order to end all your suffering. And he did that at the cross. And he wants to heal you and cleanse you from all of that even now. And yes, is there sin to be repented of? Is there a need to recognize even the ways that this individual has sinned against God? Yes, but that is not the bridge in which we connect to this individual. No, the gospel is very deep and personable. And we need to remember that. We need to remember the ways that Jesus met us in our own story. So it's unhurried, it's conversational, it's deep and it's personable, but look, it's also convicting and transformational. It says she believed, and then through her, all of Samaria believes. I think sometimes we can just overcomplicate the whole thing. Witness and evangelism is not an event. You don't have to set time aside to go out and do this. You are sent by Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit into the harvest to plant and to reap souls for everlasting life. You and I are called as we are. That's right now. Where you are, where God has called you, home, neighborhood, work, opportunity to be who you are, your story, your experience, your perspective, representing Jesus and his soul-satisfying living water to those around you. It's that simple. As you are, where you are, to be who you are, representing Jesus to others. And as we do that with God, it's deeply, deeply satisfying. Last thing I'll say on this point, and then we'll close. Nancy Piercy expressed this. Uh, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body, and I recommend it to every single Christian. You want to know how to engage the world with the gospel, with the posture of Jesus? Nancy Piercy will faithfully lead you in that way. She says this, as the surrounding society loses its connecting glue, 
the most important response is to build local small-scale forms of community that teach our children and congregations how to re-establish strong, life-giving relationships in a world falling apart. What makes, excuse me, what matters at this stage in the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the dark ages which are already upon us. Our families and churches must become centers of civilization that reach out beyond themselves with a model form of community. The strongest Christian communities, she says, families, congregations, groups of singles are those driven by a larger vision, a sense of ministry or witness. If God has given you a dependable income, a loving spouse, a strong church community, a reliable group of friends, listen, this is it. Those gifts are not just for you. They're to equip you to reach out and draw in those who are broken and searching. God is giving you the opportunity to bring hope that Christianity is real and not just words. Oh, Lord, be it unto us to put flesh and bones on the message of hope and healing. Christians must be prepared to minister to the wounded, the refugees of the secular moral revolution whose lives have been wrecked by its false promises of freedom and autonomy. We are at a unique moment in history where we have incredible opportunity to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Church, my prayer for all of us in this community is that God would awaken us to this truth of his harvesting work. His work, his ways... It's the soul-satisfying work that we were made for. It's the work that we long for. We long for a deep meaning and purpose beyond our own selves and our own kingdoms that we build. We are really longing to build with God, and he invites us to do so. And so I pray as we open our hearts to receive this truth today, we will see, we'll begin to just see, oh my gosh, these opportunities were all around me. Lord, open my eyes even more to see what you're doing and how I join you in that work.